These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. While I draw this fleeting breath. When my Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4, and our Bibles this morning. Thank you for that song. We concluded our study in chapter 3 last week, and of course we saw a man who many of us are familiar with, a man named Nicodemus, a very religious man. You remember how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He was a very religious man, but he was not born again. He did not have, have everlasting life. And though I think Nicodemus would have given most all of his life and had given most all of his life in an attempt to please God and or appease God, um, he really found himself without hope, without any kind of assurance and uh, we saw as we studied chapter 3 that, and Jesus brought this out to Nicodemus, he said, ye must be born again. Nicodemus, you're religious on the outside, you may look good for most people, but you need to be cleansed by God on the inside. You need to be made clean. And of course, he told Nicodemus how that could Happen by believing upon the Lord and receiving everlasting life. And you remember how he gave that illustration from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers about the people of Israel complaining against their God-given leadership and authority and against God himself, sinning against God. God sent fiery serpents. They, and, 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 and Jesus uses that to illustrate to Nicodemus, really, and to reveal to Nicodemus who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus, you're a sinner. Nicodemus, you're dying. Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do to save yourself or to deliver yourself, and only, only God can deliver you. And uh, this would have been a hard message, I think, for Nicodemus to swallow. And then, of course, in chapter 3, we don't see Nicodemus receiving or believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation. And the middle part of chapter 3, and just last week, we spent a good deal of time considering one particular word, in the middle of chapter 3, and that was the word already. And John points this out, and he says, those that have not believed upon Christ are condemned already. They're already condemned. Currently, they're currently under condemnation. It's not a matter of waiting until they die and enter into hell, which we would all agree that would be condemnation. He says, no. A person who has not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ is already condemned. The only way they can not be condemned or receive everlasting life is by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I made the statement last week, and it might have caught your attention. I know in my study it caught my attention. People don't go to hell because Christ's sacrifice uh, was insufficient. People don't go to hell because they, were, they are unloved. And people don't even go to hell because they're sinners. They go to hell because they will not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is according to John chapter 3. So these are things that we've been studying, we've been learning. Now we're come, we've come to chapter 4 and we're going to see quite a contrast. Uh, in fact, I don't think it would be possible 
for this contrast to be any greater between Nicodemus and this woman at the well, as we just sang about a few minutes ago. One is a man, or one was a man, the other a woman. One was a Jew, and the other a Samaritan. One was a respected ruler among the people. The other was a social outcast. The one was seen as a moral and an upstanding man. The other was seen as an immoral woman. And the one came to Jesus by night, the other came at midday. The one had no arguments, uh, though he wondered how. The other was full of questions and debate, and we'll see that here this morning. Nicodemus was cautious, but the woman at the well was bold. Nicodemus didn't seem to know what he wanted or what he needed, and the woman at the well only knew, she knew exactly, she thought, what she needed. Nicodemus fades out of the story a bit unnoticed. The other woman at the well goes back to her town, her village, and she leads many to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there really is quite a few contrasts, and we're not going to go back through all of those things this morning. But I I want us to look at our text. We'll begin in chapter 4. Look with me in verse number 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you this morning. I'm going to read down through verse number 30. And I want you to see it as it is, a narrative, a story. So even in the message, I have some points, but those are not going to stand out as much as the principles and the truths as we read through the narrative. Uh, Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, "When, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea, that would be the southern kingdom, Jerusalem area, and departed again into Galilee. So he heads north. And, he, and it says in verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now why? Why did he need to go through Samaria? As many sermons have been preached on those words. Well, because he was going to meet a woman there. Just one. One woman, and he was going to lead her into a saving faith, the kind of faith that would cause her to bring many, many others to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied, we see his humanity here, he's weary with his journey sat thus on the well. So he sits on the edge of the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Hebrew time, it would have been noon, although John's audience seems to be the Gentile world, which would have been Roman time, which would have been six o'clock in the evening. Verse 7, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. They were hungry. They'd been traveling. Verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And there's a tone in her voice when she makes that statement. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest... So he implies that she doesn't know something. Is that the best way to endear himself to her? Yes or no? What do you think? No. Okay. If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up, bubbling up, gushing up into everlasting life. Verse 15, The woman saith unto him, Sir, Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. 
By the way, that's the shortest statement she makes. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, remember he called his mother that. So, ma'am, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know we worship what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. So she has this knowledge. When, uh, when he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. This is one of my favorite Bible stories, I think, in all the Bible. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious truth that it is. Thank you for revealing yourself to us by your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by these words. Father, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts this morning. We who have drunk from the water of life. Father, I pray for we who are born again, who have life within us. Lord, I pray that we would not go looking for other sources of refreshment. But Lord, I pray that we would look to the one who gives us, who quenches our thirst once and for all. And Father, may we truly be satisfied in him. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll look back to the beginning. Uh, I, 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 I made some comments as we worked our way down, beginning in verse 1, down through verse number 8. So I'm not going to go back through those things. I think you have understanding of that. Uh, seven times, really from verse 9 on down through verse number 30, seven times we read this statement. The woman saith. Okay? Seven times in these verses, the woman here, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, had something to say. And every time she had something to say, the Lord Jesus Christ had an answer, or there was a response at least until we get down to where she's going and, and really giving testimony to her village that she's found the Messiah. She's found the Christ. But in every other situation, whenever she speaks, um, Jesus Christ has an answer for her. And I really want to work our way down through this, and I want to notice some of the words that were spoken, spoken in this narrative. First of all, I notice there are words of indignation. Word, words of indignation. Indignation is not something we all strive for especially in our marriage relationship. Uh, when the wife says something and the husband furrows his brow and in indignation responds to his wife. It's really not a pleasant thing, or vice versa, it's not a pleasant thing. But I noticed in our text there are some words of indignation. Look back to verse number 9. Verse 9, it says, Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, Jesus, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. There really is an air there uh, of indignation. Why are you asking me for water? I'm a Samaritan, and I know you're a Jew, and I know you don't like me. And the Jews have no dealings with the, or with the Samaritans. That, that's the spirit here in verse number 9. So the woman, when she first speaks, kind of highlights for us 
um, a prejudice that existed in her day. It was racial, it was religious, and there was intolerance on both sides towards one another. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Okay, And remember the words that were, I read earlier where uh, it is said that they must needs go through Samaria. This was God's plan. But there was this prejudice, and it was widespread in that day between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, as we'll see, this woman at the well had lived a rough life. She had had five husbands. The Bible doesn't tell us why those marriages were dissolved. I don't know what kind of a woman she was, but in that day, the men primarily were the ones who ended the marriage relationships. It was abnormal in that day, extremely abnormal, almost non-existent, that a woman would end a marriage relationship. So I think it's safe for me to say this woman had suffered rejection over and over and over again. She had lived a rough life. And she's quite blunt, isn't she, as she speaks to Jesus. She doesn't know him as Jesus. She doesn't know him as the Messiah here in verse number 9. But she was correct and she was on point because there was a lot of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, the racial issues went back hundreds of years. When the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians all the way back in 727 B.C., over 700 years earlier, or right at around 700 years earlier, when the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, they, the Assyrians did something that was common in those days, and they took the northern kingdom captivity, and they allowed people to come in and to populate the land that they had just taken over. And so this, these foreign settlers came to be known as the Samaritans. There, there was intermarrying between Jews and these settlers that the Assyrians brought in. And before long, these people that we know of as Samaritans had adopted a severely compromised form of Judaism. The settlers were called Samaritans. And the Jews of the southern kingdom, Judea, uh, Jerusalem area, and south, they rejected the colonists along with their mimicry of the Hebrew religion. The Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans after the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and upon their return to the promised land, they found the Samaritans still were entrenched in the land of Israel. In fact, when the Jews that returned from the Babylonian captivity tried to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans actually offered to help, but they were turned down completely. Hatred? Yeah. Bitterness, enmity, existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was a form of bigotry. It was deep, and it ran in both directions. The Samaritans' response to the temple in Jerusalem was to build a temple of their own in a place called Mount Gerizim, which was about 41 miles directly north of Jerusalem. Most Jews would not think of asking a favor of a Samaritan for fear of becoming ceremonially unclean. Many Jews believe that Samaritan women were in a perpetual state of defilement. And I say all that to say this, when Jesus asked this Samaritan woman for a drink at the well, he was sweeping aside the commonly practiced racial and social prejudices of his day. And notice that Jesus didn't answer this woman's question directly, by the way. He directed her attention to God. So she brings up the prejudice of her day. Why is it that you're speaking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You don't want anything to do with me. You think I'm nothing. It's kind of what she's saying to him. And he notices his response in verse number 10. He doesn't fall into that argument. In verse 10, he says, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him. He's referring to himself. And he would have given thee living water. Now again, he infers and implies very strongly, if thou knewest, he says, he's implying, you don't, there's something you don't know. 
there's something you don't know. Most of us, if anyone insinuates there's something we don't know, we get offended. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to work with one of my children about, uh, my youngest, um, it's okay not to know, Will. It's okay not to know. Um, because he always wants to explain everything. And, and in trying to do so, sometimes he creates a story, right? And, uh, you know, that's very creative, very creative, but it's not true. And so, you know what, Will? It's okay not to know. When you don't know something, just say you don't know it. It's really okay. Um, most of us are offended when there's something or it's implied that we don't know something. And Jesus implies this of her, and he says... He had said in verse 9, give me to drink, asking for water. Why? Because he was thirsty. And now in verse number 10, he says, basically, if you would have asked me, I have something that you need. There's something that I could give you. And there are two marvels in verses 9 and 10, and we'll move along. The first marvel I find is that Jesus asked this Samaritan woman for a drink in the first place. That was a marvel. Now, you and I aren't too impressed by that because we know Jesus. We know him as God. We know him as perfect. We know that he was never prejudiced. He was never racial, right? We know him as that. So we're not too impressed by that. But to her, it would have been, sh- it was shocking. It was shocking. He was treating her like he, with the same respect as he would give to anyone else. I would go further than that to say this. He was treating her with love, the same love that he would give to anyone else. And by the way, you and I, as God's people, as Christ's followers, ought to follow his example in that. We are prone, we are prone, as we only can do, to looking on the outside. Man looketh on the outward appearance, that's true. And just as equally, God looketh on the heart, but it is equally true that man, that's all we can look on, that's all we can see, we can't, we can't see a person's heart. But we do look on the outward appearance, but we ought to, as Jesus did, we ought not be prejudiced. The second marvel I notice in verses 9 and 10 is this. Jesus claims to have living water, which he was quite willing to give to her. He wanted her to have it. And God, the Bible says, is no respecter of persons. And Jesus tells this woman all that she needed to know to obtain salvation in this one particular verse. He tells her what it was, what salvation was and is. It's the water of life, he says. He tells her who controls the water of life. He does. And he tells her how she can get it, how she can have it, by asking him for it. And she's to receive it as a gift from God to her. Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus pointed out to her that she was ignorant of three important facts. And he remember what he says there, if thou knewest, you're, you're ignorant of some things. And here they are. You're ignorant of who I am, Jesus is saying. You don't know who I am. You don't know who you're speaking to. You're ignorant of what I have to offer, and you're ignorant of how you can receive it. And that is the problem of this world. Most people do not know who Jesus is. They do not know what Jesus has to offer. And they do not know how to get or how to obtain what Jesus can only give. What do we see here? We see eternal God. That's what I see when I look at this passage. In Jesus, just in these verses 9 and 10, I see eternal God. We've studied this. The Word. The revelation of God in human flesh. The eternal Word offering eternal life to a Samaritan woman. And that is a beautiful, beautiful picture. We've already studied how he came unto his own and his own received him not. We, we've, we've studied John 3, 16, how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish and have everlasting life. That's a wonderful word, whosoever, because it is so broad but it is also very specific. And when I look at this passage just in verses 9 and 10, you know what jumps off the page at me? Here is God in human flesh who has gone out of his way to break the social norms of his day. He's thirsty. 
Why, what is he doing? He is seeking the soul of someone who no one else cares about. And I love it. So he offers this eternal life to this woman, and he offers this life to whosoever will. There's a, 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 some more words I'd like to notice. I notice, first of all, the words of indignation. Secondly, I notice there are words of hesitation. Some, some words of hesitation. And she's a bit hesitant, this woman at the well. But she is thoughtful. Look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, it says, The woman saith unto him, Sir... Now, that's better than her calling him a Jew. I don't think she was trying to offend him, but I don't think she meant it as a compliment either, as she was drawing a distinction between the two. So now she calls him, sir, and she says, Thou hast nothing to draw with. Now, he's just offered her living water, and she looks at him and says, You don't have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. From whence, then, hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Now, that, by the way, that statement's not true. That's a fictitious claim that because Jacob was not the relation of the Samaritans. But Jesus doesn't argue with this, but she says this false claim. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof of himself, himself and, and his children and his cattle? Are you better than Jacob? She calls him sir. She's giving him more respect, but she's still confused. She thinks he's referring to this this cistern, this well. She's thinking about the Hebrew patriarch Jacob who had dug this well. Some say that the well was over 100 feet deep and through solid rock at times. And the Lord simply holds before her the attractive offer of never thirsting again. And again, he doesn't get bogged down in what she's where her mind is going. Um, he holds before her this offer of everlasting life. She was thoughtful, but I also noticed that she was very, very thirsty. She was very thirsty. For what? I mean, she was coming to the well. Was it for herself? Was it for, was it for her, the man she was living with? Was it for some others in the town? Was it for uh, some livestock? The Bible doesn't tell us what it was, but she's coming to the well... Maybe it's for herself, but her greatest thirst was not physical, it was spiritual. Now, do you think she was aware of her spiritual thirst? She is by the end of this conversation, but I don't necessarily think she was, she was well aware of her spiritual need, her thirstiness, when she first comes to the well. Was Jesus aware of her thirst, yes or no? Yes. So Jesus is offering her something that she desperately needs, and she was very thirsty. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, speaking of Jacob's well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting that's a beautiful verse. Now, I speak primarily this morning to people who have drunk of the living water from the well that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to come back to this later, but do you ever find yourself, even those of us who have drunk from the spring of living water, do you ever find yourself still, still thirsting? Do you ever find yourself unsatisfied? Something to think about. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. This woman, as we just read in verse 13 and, and verse 14, she's still thinking in literal terms. But Jesus was talking, and he was using a figure of speech. Jesus was using the physical or physical thirst to illustrate spiritual thirsting. He was using physical water to illustrate the springs of living water or everlasting life. And the only thing that satisfies Physical thirst is water, is water. Now, about a year ago, a little more than that, and for years, I was not a drinker of water. I would drink it on occasion, but primarily I would drink everything else but water. Juice? Sure, drink juice. Chocolate milk? Sure, drink that. Um, pop? Yeah, drink pop, like pop. Pop here, a little pop there, a little pop here and there and everywhere. Okay, I love pop. 
And don't bother me with the diet stuff. I just want pop. And, uh, and so I would get thirsty, and little by little, I wore my wife down, who normally only drinks water, and so I wore her down into having a sufficient supply so that I could have my thirst quenched with pop. And, uh, and so it didn't, it didn't happen right away, but just over time, I started drinking more and more and more of it. Now, what, what did I have, a kidney stone? That helped cure me of my thirst for pop. I don't know if that was the only reason that that kidney stone found my body so attractive to want to live there. But you know, um, pop doesn't satisfy. Pop doesn't satisfy. There are lots of things that a person can drink, but water is what the body needs to be refreshed. It's what, and, and here's the thing. I can remember Cindy saying, just drink water, just drink water. And I'd take a drink of water. And you know what? It didn't taste good to me. Now, some of you, I'm speaking your language. It didn't taste good to me. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. I was grumpy if I had to drink water. But you know what? After the kidney stone, I drank more water, and now it's the point where I crave water. It tastes good to me. I smile when I drink it instead of going, ugh. Here's what I'm saying. Spiritually, there's only one there's only one thing that can quench the thirst of your soul. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a person. He is the living water. Now, the reality is, if we're living in this world and we are saturating ourselves with the things of this world, the living water will not be attractive. In fact, it will not even be enjoyable to those who have grown in love for the liquids of this world, the entertainment of this world, the pleasures of this world. Living water will kind of almost make you make a face. It'll be repulsive. So the only thing that can satisfy us spiritually, and I'm talking about people, I'm talking about the creation of God, people, men and women, boys and girls, the only thing that can satisfy the spiritual thirst of mankind is living water, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the things of this world never satisfy our thirst. That is the truth. That is the truth. They never satisfy our thirst, things of this world. It's certainly true for rebellious things of this world, things that are grotesque, things that are full of sin, things that are evil that we might identify as that, things that are disobedient, ungodly things, but it is also true for the best that this world can offer. I'm talking about things that are even, they're not sinful in and of themselves. They're good. They're good things. But ultimately, even those things can never take the place or quench the thirst that only Jesus Christ can quench. I, I'm, I'm, this is a message, certainly, that could apply to someone who's never drunk from the well of living water before, who is an unsaved person. Certainly, this passage ought, could apply to that person, but I'm speaking primarily to believers this morning, and I want to tell you that it's possible for a child of God who has drunk from the well of living water to get in the habit now, having drunk maybe years ago, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, and you were satisfied, it's possible for us, for you and for me, to walk in our flesh and to start to look to the world and worldly things and fleshly things to satisfy what only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy. And no one, nothing can satisfy what only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy. I ask you this morning, now, are you thirsty? Where you sit this morning, are you thirsty? Are you craving something? Do you find within your soul that you're longing for something? You know what? I'm speaking probably to the cream of the crop. You know, you've got your family and you've got your house and you've got your vehicles and you've got your income and you've got your church and... You've got religion, and, and, and primarily I'm speaking to people who are born again. You've got the salvation of God. 
And yet, I ask you this morning, are you satisfied? Or are you thirsty? Are you hurting? Are you broken? Have you come to the end of yourself? Are you thirsting from a drink from the well that is the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a thirst in your soul that you know, you know, as I'm speaking to you this morning, that I'm speaking the truth to you, you know that this world cannot satisfy that thirst in your soul. And so I encourage you to look back to the well. Look back to the one who lives within you, who you have drunk from in the past, and only one drink is necessary to receive everlasting life. You have the gift of God. You have Christ living inside of you by his Spirit, and he never leaves you, and he never forsakes you, right? We have this blessed truth, and yet are you in your flesh looking and searching, and it's an endless, nauseating search that never satisfies. Why would a believer still be thirsting? Well, you've gone back to the well of this world. You've gone back to your flesh and the water that you're finding in the well of your flesh and the water of this world is no more satisfying now than it was to you before you were saved in the first place. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. What is it that you love? Do you love hunting? Do you love athletics? Do you love University of Michigan basketball? That wasn't very satisfactory, was it? The point is, even those things that are good, even those things that are good, do not satisfy what only Jesus Christ can satisfy. But one drink from the well of living water yields eternal satisfaction. And that is what Jesus directs our attention to in these verses. As he's, as he's speaking to this woman at the world, or woman at the well, and she was a woman of the world as well. But as, she, as he's speaking to her, he's saying, one drink from the well of living water yields eternal satisfaction. It, 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 it yields a drink. Believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ yields joy. It yields peace. It yields forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future. It yields the power of God in our lives, the presence of God in our lives. It yields wisdom that is from above and understanding. It yields goodness and contentment. It yields purity. It yields the Holy Spirit. We could talk about Him, how He comforts us, I recently have enjoyed the comfort of the Holy Spirit in my life. How he consoles us. And this is all because of drinking. There was a time in my life where I took a drink from the well of living water. Christ. The Holy Spirit guides us. He leads us. He directs us. He never leaves us. He is our companion. And the list can go on and on and on. I used to wonder as a young person when, it, when a person would talk about the inheritance that we have in Christ. And I really had a, I had a struggle thinking, what was it that I got? I mean, I know I was saved from death and hell, and that's great, but I don't, other than that, I really didn't know if I got anything. You can see the immaturity in my thinking. Pretty blatant. But there is so much, and as I grow older in the Lord, there's so much that I realize that I have in him. And Jesus says to this woman, if you'll drink from the water that I have, that I give to you, you will have everlasting. It is everlasting, the spring of water that's gurgling up, bubbling up inside of you, gushing forth. It never ends. It is, it is completely satisfying. For the rest of your life, you can always look to it as a source of refreshment and encouragement and help in time of need. Forever. One drink. Psalm 107 in verse 9 says, For he satisfieth the longing soul. Is your soul, do you have a longing soul this morning? You're not even sure what it's longing for. And you're looking and you're buying things and you're trying to satisfy the longing soul, but it's not satisfied. 
Is your soul satisfied? He says, for he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Take your hymnals, and we're not going to sing just yet, but I want you to turn to hymn number 359. 359. Oh, for the days when the hymnals were right in the back of the pew in front of you, right? You didn't have to bend over like that. 359. And I'm going to read, and I want you to look at it with me. In 1875, a woman by the name of Clara Williams penned down these words. Hymn number 359, I'm going to read. She wrote, All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I had hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. She writes, Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Verse 3, well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth. My Redeemer is to me. Do you know him as that? Are you satisfied with him? Many of you this morning would say, Seth, there was a time in my life when I drank from that cool spring. I drank of the living water. I believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, I can remember those early days of my salvation. And there was such a relief and there was such a joy. Some of you would say it was like walking on a cloud. I I had such relief and I knew that I had received the forgiveness of my sins. And I was walking with God and I had this fellowship and closeness with my Savior and my God and my King. And some of us here this morning would say, Pastor Seth, that was a long time ago. I don't... Just a memory. I want you to know something. As Jesus Christ points out to her at the end of verse number 14, he says to her, But the water that I shall give him shall be in him. All those that drink of him, a well of water springing up, gushing up into everlasting life. Jesus, when he came into this world, said that he did not come to condemn the world, but the world through him might have life. He later said that he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. That is not to say that we'll be the richest people on the planet or that we'll never go through trials and sorrow and loss or disease or or hardship and martyrdom and rejection. That is not what Jesus was saying, but he was saying this, I have come that you would have life, this kind of life, everlasting life, and that you would have it to the fullest. And the only way we are unsatisfied is when you and I start to look at what God has not given us in our flesh, really declare to ourselves that we know more about ourselves than God knows about us, we look at what we do not have and say, I want that. And I am not satisfied with, I, with, with what I have. She ends the hymn with the refrain. She says, Hallelujah. I wish we'd sing that the way it was written. Hallelujah, I have found him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood I now am saved. You know, yesterday as I was going over the message in the morning, um, I Lord brought this hymn to my mind, and I opened it up, and I sang it several times at my desk at home. And I have to say, I shed a few tears as I sang this hymn. Because I was reminded that I have drunk from the living water. And even though it's been many, many years since I took that initial drink, that only drink, the only drink that I needed to receive the salvation and forgiveness of my sins, past, present, and future, I was reminded of the truth that Clara wrote about, that indeed I have found him, all that my soul needs, and I am satisfied. I have everything that I need. I I noticed in verse 15, you're still in John chapter 4, I noticed in verse number 15, She shows some interest. Now, look there at verse 15. It says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, (laughs) that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, wait a minute. 
if, if she hadn't added neither come hither to draw, we might think that she got, got the, the, uh, the analogy or the word picture that Jesus was using. Um, but, but she's still thinking. Uh, now, but she is softening, isn't she? She's showing interest. She doesn't fully understand everything, but she is more aware now that she's thirsty for something. And I do believe, even in verse 15, we can see that before she's just coming to the, water, the well of Jacob to get some water. But now she has met this stranger, a Jew. She's calling him sir. He's saying to her, uh, you, have, you have need of something. You are thirsty. And, uh, and I can quench that thirst. Now, she still doesn't know who he is. They've not been talking that long. But supernaturally, God is opening her heart. Uh, by the way, the Lord doesn't give the gift of eternal life without first dealing with the sins of the heart either. And that's what we see next, because I notice, fourthly, there are some words of insult. There are some words of insult. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. Now, by the way, this was the best thing that could have happened to her. When we read these words of Jesus, we kind of, our eyes get a little big and we're like, well, I don't know if he... Was he being harsh on her? Was he being unlove, unloving to her? I mean, he brought up her past. You know, who wants to talk about their past? I mean, she didn't bring it up. She didn't bring it up. But Jesus brings it up. Why? Because God never gives the gift of eternal life without first dealing with the sins of the heart. This was the best thing that could have ever happened to her. It was the only way to prepare the soil of her heart. And God, by his son, was doing some plowing, and it was going to produce conviction. And this is why Jesus asked her to go get her husband. He knew her heart. Now, this is, by the way, a big difference between you and me and Jesus, because Jesus knew her heart. He knew everything about her. By the way, he was still pursuing her. He still loved her. You and I, we don't know, we don't know everything about one another. And we, we can leave it that way, shouldn't we? <laughs> I think we it's okay. We don't have to know everything about one another. But he knew her heart, and he knew it was for her own good, and he's bringing her to a place of honesty. No one has ever received eternal life without first enduring intense conviction and guilt. Sometimes when you and I come under intense conviction and guilt, because of sin, there is shame. But you know what? While there often ought to be shame, you and I also ought to rejoice in the conviction that God brings into our lives. Don't look at conviction as a bad thing. It is by the grace and mercy of God. Don't put off the feelings of guilt and shame because there first must be conviction and repentance and then there can be saving faith. So Jesus here has been communicating with this woman intellectually. He's been communicating uh, with her. Her emotions have been stirred, and now he's dealing with her conscience, and that meant dealing with her sin. And he was merciful, and he was gracious to this woman by addressing the sin of, in, of her life. Proverbs 16 and verse 6 says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. By mercy and truth, not just mercy and not just truth, but by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Parents, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged in your children. Truth, the truth may be that they've lied, they've sinned, they've deceived, they've shamed your family name, and uh, they've made you sick. That may be the truth. But if you want iniquity to be purged from your the lives, if we want iniquity to be purged from the lives of our children, it is by mercy and truth. Now, some of us err on the side of mercy. Well, you know what? Don't worry about it. No big deal. We'll just pretend like it never happened. Okay, that might be very merciful, but there's no truth involved. Something did happen. There need to be consequences for the sin. There need to be consequences for the action. Parents, if you want your children to be delivered from iniquity and the consequences of iniquity, 
mercy and truth are both necessary. Okay. Mercy and truth. And we see this here as Jesus is dealing with this woman. I, I, I could ask the question, do you remember what saving faith is? We, we talked about it. You remember admitting that a person has sinned against a holy God, agreeing with God that our sins deserve punishment because God is just, and trusting in Christ to give us his righteousness in exchange for our sins. But please know and never forget that any time God convicts you and me of sin is because he loves us. And it is only by his mercy, that conviction is only by his grace. Jesus wanted only for her to be honest about her sin. He wanted her to consider her sin. He doesn't poke, he doesn't pry into all the regretful actions of her life. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covereth a multitude of sins. There are some words of truth spoken in verse 19. But before I get to Christ's words, I want you to notice that Jesus was gaining the respect of this woman. Uh, uh, look at verse number 19. It says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now it's interesting to me that this woman, her respect for Jesus grows as the conversation takes place. She began by calling Jesus a Jew. I don't think she was trying to compliment him. Although it was true what she was saying, he was a Jew. She then progresses to calling him sir. And she calls him sir in verse 11, in verse 15, in verse number 19. And here again in verse 19, she calls him sir. But then she also calls him in verse 19 a prophet. Look at verse number 20. She says this. And now she, this is, she's trying to change the subject in verse 20 off of her sin that he has draw, uh, put a spotlight on, she tries to change the subject to religion. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say, as a Jew, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, she tries to do completely change the subject here. Jesus has just been talking to her about her sinful condition. Yeah, you, you, you married five times. And the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. Well, she tries to change the subject here. Uh, she brings up the religious prejudice of, of her day, and she tries to change the subject from her sinfulness to some religious inconsistencies. And it's almost boastful. You look there in verse number 20. She says, our fathers. Oh, this is what we believe, but you believe something different. She brings up some differences between the Jewish and the Samaritan religions. Now, Mount Gerizim was the place of worship for the Samaritans, although the temple had been destroyed already by this time. But the Samaritans didn't worship in Jerusalem. Without any doubt, this would have been a major point of contention, and it's much more comfortable to discuss religion than to discuss our sins. And she's trying to change the subject. Look at how Jesus responds to her in verse 21, and he gives her a word about the future. Verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman... Or ma'am, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. That's, that's an amazing statement. So against this woman's boasting of her fathers, her traditions... Jesus placed the Father, and it's capital F, he's referring to God, the important of our earthly father's actions, uh, of our earthly father's beliefs, what our earthly fathers have believed, it pales in comparison to the father. In other words, mankind's religions, mankind's worship, mankind's traditions all fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus here is lifting her thoughts from man's religion man's tradition, her father's earthly shrine to the father. Jesus knew that within a generation, the temple of Jerusalem was going to be extinct. She didn't know that, but he knew that. They weren't going to worship there either. And, and as well as what had the, the, the temple of the Samaritans that had once stood on Mount Gerizim. But here's the truth. God is not interested in a religion that any one of us formulates. He wants us to worship the father. He wants us to worship the Father. Now, we're Baptists here. That's what's on our sign. Independent Baptist. That's on the sign. We do things a certain way. We have our services ordered a certain way. 
But friend, can I encourage you? God only wants us to worship the Father. He doesn't want us to worship how we worship. He doesn't want us to worship our traditions. By the way, everybody has them, don't they? You go to any church in the area, and there are many in this area, we could find they have a certain way of doing things. And it may be different than us. Some things that are done may be against the word of God. Therefore, they should not be done. But you know what? We ought not worship our traditions. We ought to worship the Father. And that's what Jesus says. There's coming a day where, you know what? You're not going to be able to say, well, this is how we do it. This is how our fathers worship. This is where they worship. This is what they did. And so that's why I do what I do. He says, this is not important. What you really need to do is you need to learn to worship the Father. Look at verse 22. He talks about faith. He talks about faith in verse 22. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. You don't even know what you worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What do you believe in? Is what he was asking what, what do we even believe in? What are you trusting in? What your fathers did? Is that what you're trusting in? Many of the Samaritans would have accepted the Pentateuch, by the way, the first five books of the Bible. But outside of that, they really objected and rejected God's word. They rejected the prophets of God. The only faith that God will accept is that which came through the Jews. And Jesus says this, the Bible is Jewish in origin. Jesus was a Jew. The first Christians were Jews. And he says that in this verse, salvation is of the Jews, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David, of the city of Bethlehem, of the Jews, Jesus says. This was the lineage of the Savior of the world. God chose the Hebrew people for this purpose, and none of the faults and failures of God's people could alter his plan. And so I ask you this question before we leave verse 22. Are you trusting in opinions? Are you trusting in, in uh, traditions? Or are you trusting in worshiping the Father? If the name Baptist was stripped off of our sign, should it change how we worship the Lord? If the name Trinity were taken away, should it change how we worship the Lord? If, if this property were taken away from us, should it change who we worship? No. It should not. Our identity is not in our property. It's not in our buildings. It's not in a sign. It's not in a title or a name. We worship the Father. He speaks on about the Father in verse 23. Look there. He says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. I love that statement. The Father seeketh such. And I believe to this day he is still seeking people to worship him. He says in verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. Jesus is drawing her attention away from a place of worship, Mount Gerizim, the tradition of her fathers to a person, to the person, God the Father. And he's saying you should worship the Father. True worship has to be in spirit. That is my spirit in agreement with God's spirit. Please hear me. If our spirit is not in agreement with God's spirit, then we're not worshiping him. And I would go one step beyond that. When your spirit is in agreement with the Holy Spirit, you are worshiping him. That's really exciting what I just said. You and I can worship the Father in spirit. It's not just on a Sunday while we sing a song or have a hymn of invitation or I preach a sermon. It's, it can be every day of the week. You can worship God every moment of every day of the week. And we worship him when we worship him in spirit. When our spirit submits to his spirit and says yes to him and what he's doing, that is worship to God. And God is glorified in that. He's glorified. He's honored. He's pleased. It's a step of faith. It's an act of faith on your part and on my part. It's beautiful. Worship, true worship. We're to worship him in spirit. And by the way, this was contrary to Judaism. 
Judaism in that day was largely a worship of the letter of the law rather than the spirit. It was concerned with rites and rituals, Judaism. Forms and ceremonies, sacrifices and offerings, feast days and fasting days, circumcisions and Sabbaths. All of that was set aside in favor of a spiritual form of worship. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Real worship also needs to be in truth. Because we might be tempted to read there, we need to worship him in spirit. And if we don't define it the way I defined it, well, what does that mean? Well, it just means whatever I want it to mean. I just worship him in spirit. I'm not going to get bogged down with traditions. That's why I don't go to church. I'm not going to get bogged down in traditions. I'm not under the law anymore, so I don't feel obligated to read his word every day or to, to pray to him. I just do it as I'm led, whatever that means. But actually, he says, to worship the Father, you need to do it in spirit and in truth. I do it in spirit, my spirit in agreement with his spirit, in submission to his spirit, but also in truth. And by the way, the Holy Spirit of God within you and me will never, 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 never be in disagreement with his word. Never. But we need to worship him in truth. Truth, the revelation of God through his word. And by the way, the great majority of the Samaritan religion was rooted in lies, the opposite of truth. A living, loving father yearns for the worship of his creation, Jew or Samaritan. And that's what Jesus was saying. We worship him in spirit because of what he is. He is a spirit. And we worship him in truth because of what we are in our flesh. We need his truth. Look at verse 25 and following. We see these words, verse 25. It says, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. I know the Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. She even knows this. When he is come, now look, look at this word he. It's emphatic. She declares to Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Yeah, wow. Now this was the first time he said this that we've read. He didn't, tell, he didn't make this declaration to Nicodemus, this religious man. They came to him by night. This is the last of the Lord's seven statements to this woman. He has told her, give me water. He says, if thou knewest. He says, I shall give. He says, go and call. He says, well said. He says, believe me. He says, I am he, in verse 26. It was a critical moment. I wonder how quiet it was. He's sitting on Jacob's well. He's been having this conversation with this woman, and he says to her, She's just said, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. We'll know the truth then when he comes. And Jesus sits there and looks at her. He says, I am he. What's she going to do? I wonder how quiet it was. I could have been too quiet because the disciples were returning. They were about to show up and interrupt everything at the most inconvenient time possible. I wonder what her eyes looked like at that moment. She's been totally exposed. She's tried to change the subject. I wonder what his eyes look like. I think I know what his eyes look like. They're full of truth and mercy and grace. And he looked at her and he said, I am him. I am the living water. And one drink, and you can have everlasting life. What was her response? Well, they're disturbed by the disciples in verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with a woman. <laughs> that was socially unacceptable. Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? They didn't care for her. They didn't really care for him. They just wanted to eat. Verse 28 says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. You see a word of invitation. You and I are told to go. And I might say it this way. Tell the world, tell your friends and tell your neighbors of the glorious treasure that you have found in Jesus Christ. Are you telling them? Do you see it as a glorious treasure? Or, or do you have the attitude that I had as a young person? 
well, I'm glad I'm saved from hell, but other than that, it's just kind of a bunch of rules. I love, I love the fellowship, but I'm immature. Where are you at? Do you see what you have in Jesus? Do I see what I have in Christ? And if you have, go tell others, I've found, I've found the one who satisfies. So Jesus is calling. His, the Father's arms are wide open. Forgiveness was bought with the blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's leave behind our regrets. Let's leave behind our mistakes. You know, sometimes we look at our lives and we say, you know, wow, there's a lot of ashes there, a lot of failure. But you know that from the ashes of our failures, God can make a new life that is glorious and pleasing to him. And so drink of the fountain of life. I want you to turn back to that hymnal, hymn number 359, and I want us to sing those three stanzas together, and then we'll be dismissed. Pastor Coleman. Let's stand. 359 satisfied. All my life long I had panted For a drink from some cool spring That I hoped would quench the burning Of the thirst I felt within Hallelujah, I have found Him Who my soul so long has craved Jesus satisfies my life Wonderful afternoon. We'll see you at 6 this evening. You are dismissed.